So if you um, saw the weekly email this week, you all know uh, who our guest speaker is. It's a real pleasure uh, to welcome her back to Aylesbury Vineyard. Uh, absolutely fantastic and really looking forward to hearing what she's uh, got to say. Um, you will think that I am mispronouncing her surname if you read the weekly email. I'm not. This is correct. I even made sure that I got it uh, correct because it's, it's her married name and uh, most of her life I've known her by her her maiden name, but please give a very, very warm Ellsbury Vineyard kind of a welcome to Kira Pugh. Thanks, Steve. It's so lovely to be uh, here with you. My name, uh, my father-in-law is Burmese, so it's a Burmese name. Um, and it's delightful to be with you here. I've been a couple of times before, and I was going back over some um, of my previous notes um, to check what I had shared with you, to just make sure that I didn't say the same thing or tell too many of the same stories. Um, but what I did um, hear was, a, I think it was 2014 one time when I was here with you, I was telling you a story about um, Archbishop Justin Welby and Pope Francis. And since I would have seen you last. I have recently started working for Archbishop Justin. I had been working for Tear Fund for a very long time, looking after their youth and young adult ministry. And I would never have thought that when I shared with you that story that I would have been working uh, for Justin Welby. And um, part of the process included an, an interview, a meeting with him to check we're okay and I'm okay. And um, I grew up in kind of house church charismatic movement. So not very Anglican at all and not very informed about all the kind of proper things that you should say or do as a good Anglican going to meet the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, one thing which I didn't realize um, was a title for him is Your Grace or His Grace. Um, not being so aware of this, I managed to call him in the interview The Grace, which is of course what you say before you have dinner uh, and eat your meal. So, but he still thought it was okay. So uh, now I find myself um, in this ancient house uh, working to the renewal of the world and this um, idea of reconciliation and seeing God's freshness and renewal on this earth. Archbishop um, Justin has a vision to see the church to be the reconciling presence in conflict in communities and that we will be peacemakers um, in wherever our front lines are, where their home, work, communities, that we will be uh, fabulous peace builders. And uh, with thinking about something like this this morning, we're galvanizing a little bit of the activist within uh, the peace builder and change maker. And we're looking in the hope for a bigger, uh, more fair, kinder, a beautiful world. And I'm always really aware when we're talking about big hopes for a better world um, that I at least acknowledge at the front of that um, my ordinariness, my brokenness, my unreconciled relationships, and that the beauty of God is that we work as a body and we come together, I guess, offering what we have uh, in pursuit of some of his mission on this world. So I'm just going to say a quick prayer for us. Lord, we thank you that you are this good, amazing God, full of grace, as we sang, um, that we are forgiven for what we have done and for what we have not done. And uh, we thank you that your grace is with us. And uh, we pray we know your presence here today as we dream with you for your world. Amen. So you might also know that this month, February, marks 100 years uh, since women's first right to vote. 
So 100 years ago, February the 6th, uh, women over 30 were first allowed, the law was passed that women over 30 would first be allowed to vote. And um, there was this great big seismic shift in culture and in law uh, that went about this change that was led by the suffragettes, the, the women and men that were pursuing equality for women. And uh, they had a lot standing against them, uh, the view and belief of whether women could vote or not. But they lobbied and they petitioned and they peacefully protested and they campaigned and they sometimes used military force um, and broke windows and did all sorts of things to, to be heard that resulted in some being imprisoned and uh, also uh, force-fed. Um, I, I think, and I... I really appreciate the, the men that joined the suffragette movement. And there's a great quote from one of them who said, The petticoat no longer makes the suffragette. We are suffragettes, suffragettes in trousers. Um, and uh, these men understood that their flourishing was linked to the flourishing of others. And so in their privileged position, that they would use the power that they had to empower others that this was a time where uh, men and women, young and old, came together to bring about change. And that change led to greater equality. It changed people's view of who had value and worth. It stretched the boundaries of who should be listened to and heard. And this group of people were no longer willing to accept the practices, injustices or cultural norms of the time. They were believing, acting, hoping for a better future and it has changed the fabric of our culture of their culture and a hundred years later our culture and I want us to think briefly and ask you what do you think of our culture at the moment what are the characteristics or the norms of our culture a definition is culture is the ideas customs and social behavior of a particular people or society and before I ask you to tell your neighbours some words that you think describe our culture, I'm going to play a little film to give you some inspiration. You are unique. You are different. You are special. We definitely get that. We understand everything about you. Especially the way you talk online. Like totes, BRB and join the conversation. You say that, right? The point is, you are free. Free from words with vowels in them. Free from the restraints of natural hair color. Your hair is totally pink. You dance all the time, on the street, in your room, and definitely with your eclectic group of friends. Wow, Ephraim plays the ukulele. That's unexpected, but that's just how millennials roll, according to our thought leaders. Okay, great. Turn to the person next to you. Tell them something that you think defines our culture today. Okay, great. What are, what are some words that, that people have said to describe our culture? Pick and mix. Social media. Brilliant. Celebrity image. Celebrity culture. Excellent. Selfishness kind of self-interest, vanity, image, unequal, change. Someone said change. Liberalness as long as it's our liberalness. Tolerance for tolerance only. Yeah, okay, right to not be offended. Yeah. 
Yeah. Very good. Um, philosopher Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And this has become, I shop, therefore I am. Uh, consumerism would be one of the big hallmarks of our current culture. We are propelled to consume our identities formed by the brands that we use to describe and identify our image. Uh, in the prophet-like lyrics of a famous pop star called Lily Allen, she says, I am a weapon of massive consumption, and it's not my fault. It's how I'm programmed to function. This generation uh, see more adverts in one month than their grandparents did in their entire lifetime. 3,000 times a day, we are told our hair is wrong, our skin is wrong, our clothes are wrong, our furniture is wrong, our cars are wrong. We are wrong but it will all get fixed if we just go shopping. Uh, the consumer takeover of our souls is serious. It affects our mental health. It's affecting our planet. Um, it leads to this myth uh, that acquiring more is what brings happiness. An economist wrote in 1955, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Um, and so in this culture... In this world of kind of image, fast-paced, instant gratification, uh, disposable, wasteful, um, consumer-led, I, I wonder um, what, what my faith has to say in it. When we're looking at a broken world, a potentially quite divided world, a world with fracture and, um, and divisiveness, how can my faith mean something or speak into the culture of this time um, in Corinthians 2, it says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. The new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And this is all from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And the King James Version says, Behold, I am making all things new. And when I think about uh, following Jesus, I am ever aware that um, his invitation for us is so much more than kind of spiritual fervor within our church buildings but is this invitation for the church to be in the world. For God so loved the world that he, did not, that he gave his one and only son to come to the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I think as my personal faith grows, as I deepen in intimacy uh, with Jesus, and the longer I pursue Christ, uh, the more I find this kind of gentle nudge out of individualism, and gently into this corporate community, this family, this body of Christ, where we come together to be ambassadors for God. That we come together to be people that are learning what kingdom values are and what that might look like in the world. That God shapes our values, our values drive our behavior, and really it's behavior that determines culture. 
So what kind of behavior can we have that would shape some of culture? And I think about Jesus, um, how did he model this to us? What did he say? And we, we know that Jesus didn't bend to the prevailing culture of the day. We saw that in his treatment of women that went beyond expected or even appropriate boundaries and saw them as equals, uh, valuing them highly. We saw it in how Jesus associated himself with the marginalized and those living in poverty. In Matthew 25, where he identifies himself as, as those that are in some of the most poorest in society. And um, Jesus spent so much of his time, I guess, hanging out or supporting or being with the underdog. Um, I find the story of Zacchaeus sometimes a little bit surprising because in my view, Zacchaeus was here, this man with power. And Jesus was on his way to uh, Jerusalem and and he stopped. And there we find this story of Zacchaeus. And I'll read it to you. It's in Luke 19, verse 1 to 10, if you want to, to look it up. So as a tax collector... Zacchaeus was therefore, this bit isn't in the Bible bit, a collaborator with the imperial, political, and economic power. He was therefore an outcast and despised by his community. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to, the guest of, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I had cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And I asked myself, what do I learn about reconciliation in this story? There's personal reconciliation. Almost the childhood version of this story was that Zacchaeus met Jesus and he was saved. And that is so true. Zacchaeus is redeemed and reconciled with Christ. And in our reconciliation with Christ and in Zacchaeus' redemption and reconciliation with Christ, something happens that's a wider reconciliation that led Zacchaeus to go and be reconciled with his community. An encounter with Christ leads to transformative action. Zacchaeus repays four times what he stole. There's this redistribution of wealth. There's a necessary repayment for his exploitative behavior. But there is also a chance to seek forgiveness and healing from his community. A man who was previously complicit in unfair systems after meeting Jesus, was then challenging the status quo, no longer willing to gain at the cost of others' loss. An encounter with Jesus takes us beyond personal salvation and private faith, and it turns our actions towards a just and flourishing society. At times, it might even mean our kingdom values or our kingdom behavior is an affront to some of the unjust systems and norms of the day. I want to tell you about 
a lady that I met um, since I last came here um, called Selina in Malawi. She lives about an hour and a half out, of the, uh, out in a village outside the capital of Malawi. And she's, I think, about 55. She's got seven children. She's got grandchildren. She's still got a daughter who's just 10 years old. And um, I had this amazing moment to, to hear her story and to sit with her as um, she showed us and made us what she, she would eat for a meal. And there are a couple of practices of reconciliation that help us be brilliant reconcilers. And one of those is to be able to see ourselves through the eyes of another. And as I spent time with Selena, I got to see a little bit of myself through her eyes. And one of the other practices of reconciliation is this idea of hospitality of hosting people and having an open home and being generous and through our hospitality. But it's also to be hosted and sometimes to be the unlikely guest of someone that you wouldn't ordinarily expect to host you. Who would have thought Zacchaeus would host Jesus in his house? And uh, this is a story of Selena when I was her unlikely guest. Malawi is uh, a beautiful country. Very peaceful. Uh, home heart of Africa, but struggling.
you. Um, the church leaders of about 16 villages around Wesleyan uh, lives are now working together and going through this process of community mobilization where the church is identifying the needs of the community and working together to bring about transformation. Um, it's really easy in some ways for me to think that I am doing good things for Selena in life. Uh, but the reality is it's Selena that really is saving me. In uh, 2015, her uh, crops were wrecked because of flooding and because of the changing weather patterns and climate change. Um, in 2016, her crops were wrecked uh, because of prolonged dry spell. Um, but she, uh, she saves me from a life that is all about me. There is easy for me to create a life that revolves around me and is about my establishment. But my relationship with Selena makes my life not just uncomfortable, but more whole. My story is intrinsically linked to hers. My view of the environment not only relates to how I view Selena, but as I care for this earth, I'm also reconciling my relationship with the author of creation and this gift of earth that he has given me to steward. Because in reconciliation, perhaps it's not so linear, but we have these different relationships with God, with others, with ourselves, with this earth that we're in. And those are so linked together. And so as I move to a reconciled relationship with Selena, because of what she's going through in terms of a changing climate, it makes me want to live more gently in this earth to not be so wasteful in this consumer-led, like we create it, we build it, we dump it, we chuck it, we dispose it, we remake it. It, it begs the question for me to, to walk more kindly and in that to understand this gift from this author, this amazing creation uh, that God has given us. We uh, live in this fractured and divided world where people are defined as the other, they talk differently, they vote differently, live differently, they think differently. But Selena, perhaps the other, saves me from my life that's all about me, surrounded by people that are all like me. Reconciliation isn't just the absence of conflict or the absence of fracture or division. It is the dream that God has for us to be reconciled people with him, others, selves, the earth, healthy, whole and flourishing. Where broken relationships are restored and where there is peace instead of conflict. And there's a, just a couple of kind of really simple um, ideas or takeaways that I would love us to think about when we think about how could we be reconciled people? What are some of the steps that we can talk, will, will take towards being these ministers of reconciliation? And really simply, I have three ideas for you. One is listening. Is there someone's story we need to hear, not from their perspective, and not from our perspective, but theirs? Is there someone whose eyes we need to look through to understand what our story is in, in their eyes? So is there someone that we need to listen to, a story we've only seen through our eyes, a difference that we need to hear from someone else's perspective? Who could we listen to? Secondly, is, is there some, an issue that we are maybe just gently, quietly putting to the side or not thinking about or not wanting to address or face into or a broken relationship that, that we've not engaged with. And um, sometimes we need to feel the pain to look at the problem uh, before we feel like we can move on. So is there an issue? Is there something that we could be looking into, turning around to face into? And lastly, the idea of, of a meal 
of hospitality. Uh, some people say that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. And uh, a couple of theo- theologians would even say they crucified him because of the way Jesus ate. That uh, he uh, drank and ate with sinners. A radical act of reconciliation, as we even saw with Zacchaeus, is perhaps to share a meal with the other. A shared table provides an opportunity to move from hostility to hospitality, to hear a story and maybe make some unlikely friendships. Are there people in our community who we could gather closely to? And I even think about traditions of church like Sunday lunches. Like, and imagine, like, if Sunday lunches were these profound acts of hospitality and engagement with community, where we overcome silos and overcome ignoring ignorance, but we share a table with difference and we hear and love and learn to one another's stories.